again to Adam as well for that reading. And I invite you to open your Bible again to Luke's Gospel and chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. And again, if you need a Bible, please take one and uh, open it. Page 1052. Uh, These verses have much to say about humility and about prayer. So with that connection, let's come and let's humbly ask God's help and not presume on him. Let's pray. High and exalted God, you are so great that compared with you, we are very low in stature. So we ask that you might give us humble hearts that match this reality. We pray that through this text, this story, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would subdue pride. You would melt hard hearts. That you would help us plead nothing in ourselves for your acceptance, but only your mercy. And we ask for your help now to that end. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever read the newspaper or uh, watched the TV headlines and come across a story which is so unjust that it positively makes your blood boil? So a man is evidently guilty of some heinous crime or other. Everyone believes it's so. Even his own grandmother would testify to it. And yet some loophole in the law, some special circumstance, means that he will get off scot-free or with a paltry sentence. And even if we don't know the individual, our blood pressure rises. Or maybe the person is innocent. They didn't break the law at all. And yet they are made the scapegoat for a crime. So that by the time they are finally acquitted, having served years behind bars perhaps, not only they, but we, feel that sense of indignation. Well, if you've ever experienced that, such swelling indignation then perhaps this story, the story which Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, is going to light your fuse. Because on its surface, this story seems to model the very kind of injustice that gets under our skin. You see, on the one hand, you have a man who is evidently guilty of many things, as guilty as sin. And yet a man who at the end of the story receives reprieve. And then on the other hand you have an apparently moral man. An upright blameless character. Who is nonetheless condemned at the end of the story. And just to make matters even worse. It is Jesus who commends this story to us for our learning. And it is Jesus who points out that the judge in both cases 
is God himself. What are we to make of this parable? What is going on in this perplexing story? But surely Jesus isn't teaching that God is unjust. And neither surely is he teaching that bad behavior is acceptable or that good behavior is irrelevant. No, what he is teaching is found in verse 14, which is really the punchline of the parable. The principle is that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The parable is not about the high or the low life that we bring to God. It is about the high or low attitudes, the attitudes of the heart that God receives or rejects. And we need to learn that in this regard, humility is king. It's an ongoing lesson for Christians and a vital lesson for those who do not know Jesus Christ. So let's consider this parable more closely, what I've called a shocking study in contrast. And it begins with a contrast between two men. Two men. We're told that two men, verse 10, went up to the temple to pray. Jesus often did this kind of thing, comparing two individuals. He liked to be very personal to bring the point home. And Peter was sharing with us this morning the story, the very famous story of the two men. The wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So who were these two men? Well, first of all, we have a Pharisee, says Jesus. There are a lot of uh, strange people going around Edinburgh this time of year, wearing some rather strange clothes. I don't know if you've noticed. But not too many Pharisees, I don't think. It might not be so clear to us who these chaps were. And it's even clouded by the fact that Today, if somebody calls you a Pharisee, it's not likely to be a compliment to you. To be Pharisaical is to be hypocritical, that is to be two-faced in your dealings. And yet in the first century, when Jesus told this parable, this was not the prevailing view of the Pharisees. It was going to change through mainly the teaching of Jesus on the Pharisees. And yet during this time, they were a pretty popular bunch of people. They were Jewish, of course. They were a reform group within Judaism. Devoutly religious people. And yet not so devout that they were detached from the common folks and the common issues. You see, the Pharisees didn't come from the high class of society. They usually came from the lower classes or the middle classes. They weren't religious professionals, you see. They had day jobs. And over and above these jobs, they would serve in their community. And they were sort of lay teachers within the Jewish community. They viewed their role as making the law accessible to the common man on the street. To put the high demands of the law on the bottom shelf where you and I could reach them. 
And therefore, you would likely look up, not down, on a Pharisee. Wouldn't be too hard to imagine in 2006, would it? He's a successful businessman. He's good at what he does in the office. But when he's not there, he's equally effective in his local church. He's not a greedy man. Indeed, he may pretty much bankroll his local fellowship in Edinburgh. He's not either uncommitted to church. He's a deacon, perhaps. Maybe even an elder in his church. And he is a man who is committed to teaching the principles of Scripture to others. And therefore, if you were listening to Jesus at this point in the story, no doubt you'd be having very positive thoughts about the Pharisee. If you had a daughter, you might have in mind that she would marry a Pharisee. That was the kind of standing that they had. And therefore, what a stark, stark contrast now comes as Jesus presents a very different man. As different a man as would be possible to put in the same sentence from a Pharisee to a tax collector. And this is not a respected man, but a disdained man. This is not an upright man, but a crooked man. Again, Jesus' listeners would have known exactly who these sorts of folk were. Now, I don't imagine today that you particularly enjoy paying your taxes if you have to do that. And yet, it's usually nothing personal. At least I hope that you don't harbor hatred against the taxman. But it was very different in Jesus' time. Tax collectors were despised. You see, they took taxes from the Jews and gave the money to the Romans. And that was a problem because the Romans were the occupying force. So they were funding the army that had perhaps just killed your brother. Not very popular. And then just to stoke the anger even further, the tax collector would often take the money not only for the Romans, but for themselves. And so if the Romans asked for a certain amount, the tax collector would add on a big bit extra and he would pocket the, the cash for himself, fleece you for all he could get. So it's hard to overestimate just how despised he would have been as Jesus presents this parable. I guess there's no exact parallel today for the tax collector, but I was thinking to myself that perhaps he would have the same sort of infamy that, say, a drug dealer might have in a certain community. Morally corrupt, socially estranged. Now let me pause for a moment and ask you a question, because an interesting story of this is you read the story, the story reads you. I wonder what your immediate reaction is. If I asked you, who do you relate to between these two men? I don't know if you ever do that when you read a book and there's different characters. Sometimes you relate to one of the characters more than the others. Who would you say you are most like? The moral, hard-working, respectable Pharisee? Or the cheating, dishonest, disdained tax collector? An interesting question we're meant to 
ask it in this passage. And if our answer is the Pharisee, then Jesus has a surprise in store for us. You see, there is more going on than meets the eye. There is something going on in the hearts of both of these men. And what better place to see what is going on in the heart than in prayer, which so often reveals what's deep inside. And so from two men, secondly, to two prayers. Two prayers. A cynical American once sat through a church service and later described the minister's prayer as the most eloquent prayer ever offered to an audience in Boston. His point was that the prayer was framed in such a way that it ended up impressing people more and boosting ego more than connecting with God. And this first prayer, that of the Pharisee, seems to fall into this kind of category. It's what we might call a prayer of proud congratulations. Indeed, the posture of the prayer and the focus of the prayer and the judgments in the prayer all reveal pride in the heart of the Pharisee. Notice the Pharisee's posture firstly. See, we can assume that he is situated not only in the temple courts, but probably very near the holy place in the temple. Because we learn later that the tax collector He's standing far off. So presumably, the, uh, the Pharisee, he's, he's nearby, nearby. So he's probably down the front row of the church, so to speak. And not only so, Jesus says that he is standing boldly as he prays. It wasn't unusual for uh, Jews to pray standing up. That was the usual posture. And yet the word here for stand... It carries a sense of proud bravado, of a bold posturing. There's no sense of lowliness in this man's body language. And incidentally, our body language says something. It says something when we worship God. Our body posture does. Yet the language of his heart, the prayer that we see is characterized by a focus on himself. See, because he begins in verse 11 with a brief reference to God. Oh Lord, I thank you. But then he forgets about God in the rest of the prayer. It, it continues and it centers on him. Four times in two verses, he uses the personal pronoun I. Listen, this prayer is not how great thou art. It is how great I am. It reads more like a spiritual resume than a prayer. As he recounts both the things he abstains from on the one hand and the things he achieves on the other hand. And actually, it's quite an impressive list, isn't it? I mean, he abstains from stealing, uh, from dishonest dealing, and from sexual unfaithfulness to his wife. All very commendable. And by 21st century standards, pretty impressive. And then he talks up his religious achievements. Lord, he says, I've fasted twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income. Beyond the expectations of the law, this was. 
And again, we have no reason to doubt this is fact. And yet the Pharisee isn't finished. Just to bolster his case, all the more of how good he is, he then compares himself favorably with others. It's always easy to find someone somewhere who is morally worse off than we are. And so he looks around him and he says, look at all these bad folks. Why, even this tax collector, these folks, Lord, they're really sinners. Now, what is wrong with the Pharisee's prayer? Because it is not that the Pharisee misconstrues the facts of the case. The Pharisee does live the way that he describes. Of course, there may be some other issues that he doesn't introduce that God might be concerned in, but what he says is true. And neither is it that what he says of other people is untrue either. Indeed, these people do the things that he says. They are sinful people. Not the problem. The problem is not the accuracy of his assessment, nor the actions he performs, but the attitude that lies at the heart. You see, the fact that he talks up his achievements at all stinks to high heaven in God's sight. And the fact that he talks down other people at all is contemptible before God. One writer says that this prayer is so full of pride, it can hardly get off the ground. And you know, that's why Jesus told this parable in the first place. It was to some, verse 9, who were confident in themselves and who looked down on everybody else. To people who had attitudes of altitude, Jesus told this story to bring them down a peg or two. And we have it on record so that it might be a constant challenge to us, to the pride that lurks in our hearts. And listen, before you say, well, my attitude could never be like that. Watch out, that might be pride speaking. You know, pride is so prevalent in our society It is hard to escape it, and often even to detect it in ourselves. We are bombarded, we are pummeled with messages to believe in yourself. Don't be self-critical, people say. Don't let anyone tell you there's anything wrong with you. You're a wonderful person, you're great. If there's a God, he'll like you. And as much as we buy into that attitude, the Pharisaic spirit is alive and well, 2006. And by the way, you don't need to be a churchgoer to adopt this attitude. Plenty of people who never darken the door of a church speak like this, don't they? They say, I'm a good person. I never harm anyone, they insist. Why would I need forgiveness? Maybe that alcoholic, maybe that adulterer, a criminal, they might need God, but not me. And it's a tragic thing, you know, because this proud spirit keeps so many people from coming to God. You know, some people are even convinced by all the arguments about Jesus Christ. They don't need any more convincing. But pride prevents them from coming to Jesus. And you know, Christians 
Listen, Christians are not exempt from this danger either. John Stott, a very respected Christian writer, says this, that at every stage in our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. I wonder this evening if we are taking pride seriously enough. Do you know that even after you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ the first time, it will be your constant struggle to keep that posture. Pride will constantly encourage you to get off your bended knee, to stand proud and puff out your chest. And that's why Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians, a church that excelled in so many different ways. And he reminded them, keep in mind, The mind that was in Christ Jesus, who though in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Taking the very nature of a servant, listen to this, becoming nothing. Beware of thinking through your Christian service, through your sanctified resume, that you are something. Instead of being like Christ and becoming nothing in your service to God. Charles Spurgeon was a a very great preacher and he once came down the pulpit steps after preaching a sermon. And a lady stopped him in the aisle, grasping his hand. She said, Mr. Spurgeon, that was a most wonderful sermon. And Spurgeon responded, I know, dear lady, the devil whispered that in my ear as I was coming down the pulpit steps. See, it's a constant temptation. The devil's always whispering to think that before God, our gifts given by God, our track record, our commitment, are something in terms of our acceptance with God. And even while theologically we may have it right in our heads, practically in our lives, do we live this way? I wonder if in a difficult Circumstance, you've ever prayed like this. Lord, I've given so much for you. You know, Lord, I've done my best to serve you. Why won't you change this or that situation? And the Pharisaic spirit emerges from the depths of our hearts, you see. Look at my record. How different is the prayer of the tax collector? Do not looks to himself, but to God. Not to his merit, but to God's mercy. It's just a very brief prayer, but it's clearly a prayer of humble contrition, isn't it? Notice the very different posture of the tax collector. Verse 13, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. And while the Pharisee is standing in the front row, the tax collector slips in somewhere up the back. And although he is standing too, again the common Jewish posture, nevertheless, he isn't posturing. Jesus says that he doesn't even look up to heaven. Very unusual for a Jewish man not to do that. And he is beating his chest which was a sign in that culture of grief and anguish and contrition. He's a broken man. He knows his feelings. 
And therefore, the focus of his prayer is not just merely on himself, but on God and his mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Literally, it means propitiate. The word for mercy to propitiate means, Lord, turn your anger away. Atone for my sins. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. When it says that Christ made atonement, he propitiated our sins. An idea that's being attacked today from all sorts of corners. See, people don't like the idea that God becomes favorable towards us, that his anger towards sin is removed through the sacrifice of his son. It's too crude. And people don't like the fact even that God's anger is turned away out of his great love and his immense sacrifice. And they say Paul's wrong, or they say we're reading him wrong, and yet here is Jesus, and it's really black and white. He puts the word on the lips of the man, Lord, what I need for you to do is to mercifully propitiate your anger and to forgive my sin. It's what we all need. That's why later in Luke's Gospel, Jesus went all the way to the cross. Why else did Jesus die on that cross if not to pay the price for our sin and turn away God's anger from us? It is a glorious, humbling truth. And we should say, in light of it, as the tax collector says, I am the sinner. That's actually the original translation. I am the sinner, not just a sinner. See, the Pharisee compares himself with everyone else to down them. And yet the tax collector says, I am the only sinner. Forget about the rest. I wonder, have you ever prayed a prayer like this? When I was uh, baptized some years ago, I had the privilege of being baptized alongside a lady who was 89 years of age. Her name was Mrs. Sheldon. And she had a fascinating story, been in church uh, pretty much all her life. And she was the sweetest lady you were ever likely to meet. But at the age of 88, it had suddenly dawned on her, I think it was just through reading the Bible, that she had never really admitted before God her sin and her guilt. And for all her outward morality... He recognized that inside she was really a Pharisee in spirit. And so at 88 years of age, she confessed her sin. She became a Christian. At 89 years of age, she was baptized. And at 90 years old, she died. And thank God, she had the humility before it was too late to make the switch from proud congratulation a humble contrition. See, maybe you've been resisting God and it's been for a long time. It may even have been for a lifetime. But it's not too late to make the transition you need to make. Or maybe you're a Christian and yet pride has been taking root in your heart more and more recently. You're pretty stubborn these days. You expect things of God and others. 
You rarely pray prayers of repentance, or if you do, you rarely feel them. And if you're honest, your prayers these days sound more like the Pharisees than the tax collectors. It's been a while since you said and meant, Lord, I am the sinner. And maybe tonight you need to come back to that meek mentality. To ask the Lord to break your spirit, the hardness of your heart. We need to get this right. Because notice, thirdly, two men, two prayers, and finally, two verdicts. Uh, Someone has described uh, these stories, the parables, quite helpfully as parables with punch. Because they always have a punchline at the end, often very surprising punchline. And you can just imagine the crowd drawing breath as they get to verse 14. Because despite the content of the prayers and the attitudes of the men, we're still maybe expecting that in the end, the Pharisee, the very moral religious man, is going to be accepted. Surely God is going to reject this tax collector, however penitent he is. Not so. First of all, we learn that the tax collector has his prayer accepted. I tell you, says Jesus, verse 14, that this man went home justified. He returned home that day right with God, in a right relationship with God. That's what being justified means. And clearly, it involves nothing of ourselves. This man has done nothing to curry favor with God. And again, later in the gospel, as Jesus goes to the cross, his death, his merits, his sacrifice for us becomes the basis upon which God forgives this man's sin. As we sometimes sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That is a song of a justified man or a justified woman. And so listen, maybe you feel without persuasion. When I said earlier on, which person do you think you're like? Maybe you felt, even then, you're the tax collector. Maybe you think there's all sorts of things you've done. You could never be accepted by God. Right? Wrong. God justifies the ungodly through the sacrifice of His Son. It's not your merit that's the basis. It's God's mercy. May God grant that someone might heed this call tonight. And if you're resisting, then be warned. Look at the four frightening words which interject verse 14. Not my words, Jesus' words. This man, rather than the other, went home justified. From which I think we can safely say the Pharisee was condemned. He came to church that day condemned, and he went home condemned. You see, the externally moral man? Yes. The evidently good person? Yes. Condemned. Because his attitude had altitude. He never asked God for his mercy, and guess what? God never gave him it. He got exactly what he asked for or didn't ask for. 
You know, there were two men later in the Gospels who hung on two crosses next to Jesus. You remember the story. One on Jesus' left, one on Jesus' right. And we're told that one of the criminals looked down his nose at Jesus. And rather than asking for mercy, he pridefully scorned God's Son. He refused to repent. He didn't ask for forgiveness and he didn't receive it. But there was another man, another criminal, and he did not seek to justify himself. He admitted his sin. He said, we are getting what our sins deserve. And then he turned to Jesus and he pled for mercy. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And that man, rather than the other, went home, home to heaven in his case, justified right with God. question is, which person will you be tonight? As you go home, in the phrase of the parable, how will you go home tonight? Just the same, like the Pharisee, Or justified like the tax collector. I've never been there, but I'm told an interesting story about the Church of the Holy Nativity in Bethlehem. Uh, It's built over the place believed to be the birthplace of Jesus. And it is a huge stone complex, very, very large, but it only has a fairly small and single door. And it's called the Door of Humility. It's only about 48 inches high, so you can't get in unless you stoop. And listen, we can be made right with God, but we have to stoop. We can't enter God's family unless we come through that door, the Door of Humility, pleading His mercy. And continuing to walk humbly with our God. It is a fact that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Great.